The main difference between juvenile court and adult criminal court is, I think, is that we look at these young people as developing adults, and it, and it gives that opportunity to say, you know, it's not just how old you are and what you're charged with. What else is going on with this youth? What does their prior record look like? You know, what are some available services that, frankly, would not be available in the criminal justice system? And I think that's really, really going to be helpful down the line. All rise. All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and, and Associate, Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of New York, the State of North Carolina. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina. All of our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court. God save the state and this honorable court. Hey everyone, I'm Latobia Avon with the Office of the Juvenile Defender. I'm the Communications and Office Manager with the Office of the Juvenile Defender. And today on All Things Judicial, we will be talking about Raise the Age and the Office of the Juvenile Defender to give a little bit of resources and background on what we do alongside uh, this new law. Uh, so with me, I have our state juvenile defender, Eric Zagrai, and our assistant juvenile defender, Bersha Hensley. And I am going to kick it over to Eric to give us a brief overview of the Office of the Juvenile Defender. And Eric, take it away. Thanks, Latopia. Um, thanks um, to the Administrative Office of the Courts and All Things Judicial and Brian Chris for inviting us today and talking about um, Raise the Age. So if you're not familiar, the Office of the Juvenile Defender um, is part of what I call the uh, IDS family. We are under the Office of Indigent Defense Services, and we are basically the support structure and policy development for all attorneys who practice juvenile defense at the trial level. Um, so we do all kinds of stuff. We do things like uh, create a website, have all kinds of materials, do consultations, um, we also uh, work on policy development, both with you know how lawyers should be doing their job, but also in the larger juvenile justice arena. Um, we are currently in our 18th year, which is hard to believe because I'm not much older than that. And um, nobody laughed. <laughs> there you go. Um, and um, it, it is kind of hard to believe, but um, we, we grew out of a really a nationwide um, movement to improve the quality of juvenile defense. If folks aren't so aware, you know, having a lawyer as a child is not a really old concept. Um, in 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court and Ray Galt determined that uh, juveniles or youth need lawyers uh, in the courtroom. So the development of what those lawyers are supposed to be doing is fairly new. And um, the National Juvenile Defender Center um, came down and did a a study, and worked with the then new agency, IDS, to create the Office of the Juvenile Defender. Um, so we got started in 2005, um, and um, very fortunate that we've uh, grown in personnel. Latobia mentioned um, Bersha Hensley, who's with us here today. We also have Assistant Juvenile Defender Terry Johnson, um, our project attorney uh, Yolanda Fair, and consultant Kim Howes. So 
Um, I'm like looking at my fingers counting because I remember when it was like one person and now we're this many people. So, you know, I'm, I'm real happy about that. And, um, Bersha, would you like to say anything else? You've just joined us in September, so I know it's been interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty new with OJD on the team here, but before that I was contracting with you guys at, out in Western North Carolina. So I've got some experience with you guys and also a little bit of background, you know, on the front lines. I'm still doing that, of course, but um, you were talking about some of the things that we do here at OJD. And, you know, when you said both the training and, and supporting our frontline defenders, that's one of my favorite parts of what we do here at OJD. Well, it has definitely been a journey for me as a non-legal representative, um, learning about the different laws and statutes and seeing the back end of how things happen is really been an experience. So with that being said, Eric, can you give us a brief introduction into what the Raise the Age was or is? Sure. So going back a century or so, um, specifically in 1919, um, the legislature determined that any person under the age of 16 charged with a crime is in juvenile court, which meant that once you turned 16, you were in adult criminal court. Time rolls on, and many states, you know, look at look at their laws, and, and you know, it started to elevate into like 17 and 18, except for North Carolina. Um, we revised our juvenile code several times, especially in the last 30 years, um, but there just didn't seem to be, you know, the will to do this. And then we started finding ourselves really kind of being isolated as one of the only states that automatically charged 16 and 17 year olds as, as adults. And so um, there was a lot of recent movement in the last 20 years. Um, and there was a lot of people, I won't go into it, who were very instrumental in making this happen. Um, one of the, the, the main things that happened was, was the 20s, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to mess this up, 2015 or 2016 report uh, by then Chief Justice Martin on the administration of law and justice. And it was a very, very in-depth um, look at this issue and had um, you know a lot of good recommendations, which ultimately led um, to the change in the law. Now, what's um, interesting is the law actually passed in 2017, but didn't become implemented until December 1st of 2019. And the very basics are, that now, if you're 16 or 17, unless you're charged with a motor vehicle offense, and that usually is something like speeding or driving without a license, um, you're going to start in juvenile court. It doesn't matter what you're charged with. You can be charged with anything from simple assault to first-degree murder, and if you're 16 or 17, you're going to start in juvenile court. And so that became um, effective for offenses committed on or after December 1st, 2019. Um, and so those are those are pretty much the basics. There's, there's a lot of details, but um, that's, that's the main picture in a nutshell. And Brescia, you were actually doing direct representation full-time when Raise the Age started. So can you talk about what uh, occurred or what you saw once Raise the Age became implemented in 2019 until you joined us? Sure. Uh, I mean, first of all, there were definitely a lot of questions, but thankfully, we could look back to the statute, and of course, at the time, I would reach out to OJD to make sure we were getting it right when we were talking about, okay, where does this case go? Is this, um, is this juvenile somebody that's been in the system before? No, yes. What, how do we do this? But um, once those initial questions got answered, 
everything, the rest of the process was, was smooth because it was just sort of, um, at that point, an addition of a class of, of children, a class of juveniles to a system that was already in place. You know, the recent history of the last couple of decades, somewhere between 40 to 45% of all offenses that came into juvenile court were uh, school-based offenses. Um, usually minor offenses could be simple assault, disrupting class. Pandemic hits, there's no school. <laughs> when there's no school, that means all of these cases disappear suddenly. Um, so it, I would think that we are going to start to get more of a sense of what this is really going to look like because school has now been back in session. Um, the other thing that I would mention is, and this is just a statistical, you know, um, you know, big picture message is that the projections on what was going to happen uh, were, were very much accurate for the more serious offenses. But for, again, for the misdemeanor and low-level offenses, about half of what was uh, predicted actually came to be. And we didn't get really get into this, but one of the concerns about Raise the Age was going to be cost, right? It was like, how much is it going to cost to do everything from paying the lawyers to having facilities to place the kids and come to find out that, um, you know, for whatever reason, and we're not, we're not really sure why, um, half of those low-level offenses never showed up in court, some of which is, is pandemic-related. But interestingly enough, in other states that had recently changed their laws, very similar things happened. So go figure. Were there any adjustments now that we have been kind of doing this for almost, what, three years? Yeah, one thing that was a little confusing was, you know, there was a two-year gap when the law was uh, first passed and enacted. And so uh, there were a few changes before um, the law was enacted and then soon thereafter that I thought were really critical. Um, two of them were kind of what I would say release valves on the system. The, the first one was that um, if a case did get transferred from juvenile court to adult criminal court for some 16- and 17-year-olds, the prosecutor and defender could then um, agree to send it back um, if, you know, if there was a mutual agreement to do so and the judge could send it back. You know, that, that hit about 10% of the cases. Um, but just this last session, there was uh, another piece that I thought, um, you know, I, I think Im improves um, the outcomes for some of these youth in that on the front end, the prosecutor can say, well, you know, for certain offenses, uh, class um, D through G offenses, you know, maybe this case would be better suited in juvenile court and, and um, uh, you know, not move, but agree not to transfer the case um, and have it remain. And I think that's a, that's a good tool because, you know, <laughs> the main difference between juvenile court and adult criminal court is, I think, is that we look at these young people – as developing adults, and it, and it gives that opportunity to say, you know, it's not just how old you are and what you're charged with. What else is going on with this youth? What does their prior record look like? You know, what are some available services that, frankly, would not be available in the criminal justice system? And I think that's really, really going to be helpful down the line. So one of the things that you mentioned is sort of uh, like this awareness of the fact that these the psychology and the development of this population is different. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing in the courtroom, particularly with these 16 and 17 year olds that we've now included, is almost sort of a, a subclass, a, a genre of juveniles that are 
often referred to as youthful offenders. Uh, that's not a statutory or legislative term or anything like that. It's kind of become a term of art that I've seen around or heard around. Um, and it's this recognition that they're not adults. They don't have the same needs or psychology or development um, as adults, but there's a recognition also that, for example, a 17-year-old and a 10-year-old are not going to, even if they're charged with the same thing, uh, it's not, they're not in the same boat. The, the age difference, you know, between a 10 and 17-year-old is astronomical in comparison to uh, like a 40 and a 47-year-old. Um, so I've, I've definitely seen in the courts this recognition of sort of groups of ages, if you will, with, of course, the 16 and 17-year-olds charged with those higher felony offenses being uh, the youthful offenders and, and potentially looking to the future as we move forward. Um, you know, is that, is that it? Is 18, is there a hard line there? Or, I mean, our, our science and psychology says, no, our brains are developing till, till 25 or, or more possibly. So what does that hold for the future of legislation? And, you know, what can we do as OJD, as stakeholders in the juvenile justice system to, to account for that? When spinning off of that, um, you know, we talk about raise the age was important because the mental state of a 17-year-old is completely different than the mental state of a 28-year-old. And, you know, with Raise the Age, there comes a lot of hopes and dreams about what this could mean. So, Bersha, could you talk about any hopes that we have for Raise the Age and in the court system, since you are doing it every day, you are still in court? Sure. One, one of my favorite aspects of the culture of juvenile defense is that we truly approach every single case on a case-by-case basis. Um, of course, you're going to have somebody out there that, that may start with a form template on you know, the recommendations or something like that, but um, there's a, a genuinely accepted approach that every child in the system got here for a different reason, has a different background, and um, we, we look at those. And as a defender, it's one of my favorite parts of my job when I'm in a courtroom is to tell this child's story. I, I've come across situations where parents have said, this child's no longer welcome back in my home. And I have to take a step back, you know, take a breath, collect myself. Um, masks have been great for that in the, over the last two years, so I'm going to have to rework my, <laughs> my, my poker face. Um, but, you know, part of what I'm doing is I'm finding alternative solutions um, with help from other stakeholders, maybe other family members, um, but just really trying to help this child figure out what's next in life. Um, and that's, that's powerful to be able to, to be involved in a child's life where I'm, you know, not only right here, right this second in this courtroom, decisions are going to be made, but sort of long-term as well. Um, so maybe I say, Your Honor, I understand the mom is sitting here in court next to her child saying that he can't come back into her home, but on the other side is grandfather, and he would love to have this child in his home. Here's grandfather's uh, plan for how to take care of this child, and then that moment where the judge says, I think that's a good idea. It's, I'm goosebumps right now, just thinking about it. I can remember a time when I first started, or maybe kind of in the middle, where I was allowed to watch court 
and um, it was just case after case after case. And I felt myself ramping up to get mad because these kids were kind of doing things that weren't really big crimes to me that I didn't think deserve the punishment that they got. And in particular, um, there was one child who was in a YDC or a detention center. I know they're separate. Forgive me. I'm not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but was in custody. And they were trying to get this particular child out. And she was speaking to the judge and she just kind of started to cry a little bit because she wanted to go home. And she was tired of being in there and she was just coming off really remorseful for what had happened. And they didn't let her out. And I felt so sad. And and, and I'm not an attorney. Right. So for me, it just only pushed my passion to get as much realistic and factual information out there about how these youth are being punished or how they get in trouble or what they get in trouble for and to advocate for a different option. Latoya, you're, you're actually, you're not wrong. So I've been to the detention centers uh, when I'm going to talk to my clients, right? Sometimes you just, especially with these younger folks, you, you've got to be in person. This video stuff, this over the phone stuff, that's fine for like, what's the next court date? But if you're talking, you're, you're in person, right? So I'm there. The difference between really the, the adult holding facilities and the juvenile holding facilities is the size of the chairs. Wow. That, you know, they're, they're plastic, they're a little more colorful, and that's about it. These doors lock. When I go into a room to talk with um, my client, we have to ask permission. We have to knock on the door and ask permission to be let out. It is, yeah, it, it's not like just kitty jail. Like, you're, we're not talking cartoons and, and that kind of thing. It's This is for real. And this is um, for sort of a small lesson for those that aren't familiar with the juvenile set, uh, how the juvenile world works with pretrial detention. So if somebody's arrested in the adult world or taken into custody in the juvenile world, um, in the adult world, there's a bond or bail typically that's set. If you can come up with that money or a family member, then you're out while you wait, while your you know case takes forever and ever, you're preparing with your attorney, whatever. With, with these juveniles, there's no amount of money that's going to get a person out. It's in or out at the discretion of the judge. There's one person at the bench in a black robe making a decision as to whether you are in this locked iron door facility at the age of you know, 15 or whatever versus not. So it, in in some aspects, it's significantly harsher for these juveniles than it is for adults. You know, another thing I just thought of when we're talking about raise the age and, and juveniles in court, shackling. I... I was amazed if you if I'm sure everyone who's listening to this knows what shackling is but I learned that you know it's your wrist bound to your feet kind of like a chain gang almost type thing and they would bring children into court like that yes and you a lawyer had to fight or has to fight yes to not have that child in chains like waddling into court that's insane but i mean it happens it's frustrating and it's a recent issue actually because north carolina didn't have a law on that until 2007 wow um and when i practiced in greensboro before that we didn't think about that um you know it was you just sort of saw it happen and and, you know it was it's just like raise the age you know you just accepted it as what was going on Mm -hmm. 
But I think part of the, you know, ideology of being a defender is sort of pushing reform, yeah. um, whether it's in the courtroom or it's, a, you know, on the policy level. And that was one of the things, the salient things we could do. And we're still sort of seeing out in the field, you know, different ways it's, it's being implemented. But we try to work with defenders on, you know, for example, if you're um, like one time I was observing court and I was sitting behind the juvenile and the juvenile's attorney and the juvenile's attorney had an opportunity to argue whether or not the shackle should be removed. And the, the attorney said, you know, I don't need to be heard on that. And as soon as the, the attorney said that, the juvenile turned their head and looked at the attorney like, what? You're not going to argue for me? And you can see in real time right then and there that the confidence building evaporating. Yeah, it it definitely has changed my mindset of the law. You know, everyone, even when you get a juvenile public defender or someone on a list or someone who does juvenile work in their private practice, you you hear of public defender, you think, oh, they're not going to do anything for me. They're not going to argue for me. They don't care. They've got a hundred different clients that they're trying to get out of jail. And what I've seen working here is that every juvenile defender cares, like every single one. And the ones that are trying to get into it, care more in my opinion because they're they're they haven't been battered down by <laughs> you know what they've seen over the years as far as um juvenile court um so with that being said is the law working as intended or as you would like to see it intended with all the obstacles we've had since 2019 yeah i mean i think it's i think the system the court system juvenile justice has done as well as possibly can you know under the circumstances um to try to provide you know justice and services to these youth we, like like Berger was saying we've seen some cracks um but um for the most part i think everyone from you know law enforcement you know through the, the end of the case everybody was well educated from from whatever angle it was that was the key really uh, was to make sure everybody kind of understood now that, that did mean there's there's not some some obstacles um but we haven't heard of any of the systems crashing we do see some some other um challenges that are coming uh that i won't mention right now but maybe on a future podcast <laughs> um that we can talk about because there might be some things around the corner but i think overall it it has it has worked as planned i it's it's just we didn't we didn't expect that the world would shut down and Bersha, what do you think uh yeah <laughs> if we could have foreseen the world shutting down then maybe some of those pieces might have been potentially approached a little differently but i think um, at least in terms of how the how the session laws and Senate bills, you know, in their final form, how they got signed off and, and how it's working now, I think it's pretty closely related. I think there are, again, probably for another podcast episode, some <laughs> good war stories about how maybe the original version of the bill looked and then how, you know, it the final signatures are. But at least in terms of what's out there now and how it's working, I, I think it's they're pretty closely matched up. Yeah. Any final thoughts, though, on just Raise the Age? Anything we should share about Raise the Age that people should know? Um, well, if you're interested, um, there are resources out there. You can always contact our office. 
I know the school of government has resources on um, their website. Um, the division of juvenile justice has resources on theirs, but you know, anyone um, can, can always contact us and, and we'll be glad to talk to them about uh, what we know. Um, we just you know, try not to prognosticate or reveal any confidential information. And I'm going to do a shameless plug because I'm in charge of all of it. Um, you can visit the Office of the Juvenile Defender at ncjuveniledefender.com. We are on Twitter at twitter.com slash ncojd. Same for Facebook, facebook.com slash ncojd. We are also on LinkedIn um, at off, NC Office of the Juvenile Defender. And we're on YouTube at North Carolina Office of the Juvenile Defender. So we are accessible on so many platforms, uh, so many different ways. Um, if you are a new attorney, we have orientation packages. We have quick guides that are full of information for you, um, strategy, tips, tricks, all types of things that you can use. If you are interested in doing juvenile work, you can also contact the office and Eric, Bersha, Terry, Yolanda. Everyone will give you some sort of lead to get that started. All right. Well, all things judicial. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Bersha. It was great. You guys want to sign off and say anything? Thank you, Latobia, for hosting. Thanks, uh, all things judicial. And we'll see you in a radio or some other digital device soon. You've been listening to All Things Judicial, a podcast from the North Carolina Judicial Branch. You can find out more about the Judicial Branch by visiting nccourts.gov. If you like our podcast, please share it with a friend and give it a five-star rating and review. Your help is essential to sharing the important work of the Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears, with the Judicial Branch Communications Office, and I'm reminding you to keep all things judicial. Thanks for listening.